I'm going to invite George Kim, who's a member, long, long-time member of our church here, to give us God, or to read God's word to us. Uh, we've been in the book of James, as we just kicked that off a couple of weeks ago, looking at living in a fractured world. And James, which is wisdom literature, actually gives us opportunities and a, and a hope that we can actually experience wholeness. And so it's very practical, things that we can take with us every single week to be able to live a life uh, that the gospel shows us we can live in the midst of a fractured world. So let's give attention to God's word as George Kim reads this for us. Thanks be to God. Pray with me. Lord, we give you thanks this morning to be able to come to sing songs and to lift up prayers and to be encouraged by the family of God. And so as we come to your word now, give us ears to hear, give us eyes to see so that, Lord, we might be transformed by the good news of Jesus, the Lord of glory. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. A little over a week ago, um, I got to celebrate our 18th wedding anniversary for Hannah and me. And it was a joy. No applause. First service, I got like all this standing ovation. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Um, I was actually surprised that I got an applause. But some of you might hear 18 years and be like, wow, that's a long time. And others of you are thinking like, oh, he's got a long way to go. They're little babies. But nonetheless, 18 years. And to celebrate, um, we got to watch Les Miserables together. It's our favorite musical. And the timing worked out perfectly. It was in town at the Fabulous Fox uh, on the night of our anniversary. And so we went. And, uh, but this time was a little different. Actually, a lot different because for the first time ever, we were not in the back of the theater, but we were up front and center, third row, and it was incredible. It was incredible because you got to see facial expressions that they had that we've never noticed before, gestures that they would make to each other that we've never noticed before. And even for the minor characters who are in the background, who are part of the choir or different dance routines, to be able to see them in their part was really neat and, and beautiful. But you know what the best part of our time together was at, at Les Miserables? Was that we got to sit in the third row. <laughs> and not just sit in the third row, but to the walk to the third row. That walk is long. Like, you just keep going and going and going, and I've never felt so important in my life. I mean, the fact that, like, as I would pass by people, I'm like, oh, I'm sorry. No, we're not sitting in double A. Like, double A? No, we're sitting in C. Like, as we pass people by, thinking that, oh, I feel so sorry for you guys, that you're way back here, that I did this multiple times, you know? It was not only for my intermission and taking a bathroom break, but just to stretch out my legs, to make that long walk up and then back down felt so powerful for me. <laughs> now, some of you might laugh at this, but it even got worse because when we got there really early to enjoy our third row seats front and center, as we sat there waiting for other people to show up, the couple next to us finally showed up and they were in like the most casual clothes, what I would say shabby. Like they were in jeans, they were wearing a sweatshirt and in my mind I was like, oh, you are not city people. You are not people like us who dress nicely and are here to celebrate a, a very important moment watching Les Miserables. 
But the wife must have read my mind or maybe saw my facial expression, how I judged her. Because out of nowhere, without any provocation, she said, oh, we just casual because we come here so often. (laughs) I was so annoyed. (laughs) So annoyed. She just ruined how, how great this feeling was to sit that close, to know that this woman comes here all the time. Now, why do I share this? You might laugh at me and you might laugh at the things that I'm thinking as I'm a little vulnerable with you all. But James says this is no laughing matter. He actually calls us wicked and evil. To show partiality is evil. Now, why does he take such a strong stance at this? He uses words like making distinctions. He gives us an illustration of what that looks like for the church when James was writing to you, and it's very applicable to us. How do we make distinctions? How do we show partiality? Well, it can be in the color of one's skin, in the implicit biases that we have of the other race. It could be the age of a person. It could be socioeconomic, one that James focuses in on. It could be a multitude of things. It could be the person that just is weird and acts weird, right? Students, I know you guys are not in your classrooms this morning, but think about you as children in your classrooms. Don't you make, don't you show favoritism and you like this person, but you don't like that person? And there's different reasons why we give that. And though we as adults especially, find these things somewhat, I don't know, arbitrary, James says it's not. And we've been looking at different aspects of his letter so far, right? And they're very practical. This is wisdom literature to show us what it looks like for us to be living in a fractured world. Well, think about how fractured our world is when we make distinctions. And James wants to correct that. And it's rooted here in the gospel. He roots it not in, yes, it's important that we're made in the image of God, that we are image bearers and we have dignity, but he wants to root it in the gospel of Jesus to say why it matters is because of the gospel. So what I want to do this morning, briefly, in the time that we have, is look at why it's so important to look at this disregarded sin that we find arbitrary, that we don't even think about often. But then actually look at the solution, which is the amazing gospel of the mercy of Jesus. So first let's look at here the main point here number 1 of this disregarded sin that we often overlook. Now here if I were to ask you this morning name the top 3 sins or maybe not sins top 3 things of what it means to be a Christian that where we would see an undefiled and pure religion. What would those be? I mean I think we would look at last week and say well we have to read God's word and receive it. We have to be a doer of God's word. We have to care for those that are marginalized, who are widows and the orphans. Might, some of us might say, well, just because of our background, well, sexual purity is absolutely important. But as, Paul, as James continues in his thought about what is a pure and undefiled religion, he brings up this sin of partiality. Now here in verse 1, what does he say? He says, my brothers... Show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Now, what does partiality mean? Well, James takes this compound word 
And he says, this is sin. And literally what the word is, it's to receive face. In other words, we receive some faces, we welcome some faces, but we disregard other faces. We'll favorite one face and we'll hate another or not like another. And it's for all different reasons, right? We've looked at or I've shared a little bit of the fault lines that we have of how we make distinctions and how we're partial to one over another. James gives us a socioeconomic example. And it's here verse, in verse 2. Read along with me. He says, For if a man were wearing gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, You sit here in a good place while you say to the other poor man, You stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinction among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? James is saying, here is this person who looks wealthy, who's wearing a diamond ring, wears good clothes, drives in a nice car, and comes in. And we will favor that, but we will, we will be partial to that person and welcome him with open arms. But to the one who might smell, who looks different, who acts weird, who doesn't look important, who doesn't get to sit in third row of an auditorium, we will disregard that person. Now here at our church, I think we, we would say, well, we are very welcoming. And I've heard that many times from visitors to regular attenders and members who have stuck around. One of the big important factors and what, what people love about our church is the welcoming aspect of our church. But let's not, let's not mix up or conflict, conflate politeness and being kind outwardly and externally and being welcoming and even hospitable to what goes on in our hearts and our minds. Because while we are nice and polite and kind and welcoming, in our hearts, in a split second, we make judgments. We make distinctions between one person and another. If I'm very honest with you this morning, I do that all the time. Even as a pastor, and staff can relate to this, but as we have some people from the community walk into our doors needing help, in one less than a second, I have already created a narrative in my mind of past, future, and present, of who that person is and what that means for me. In less than a second, I'm able to say and create in my mind where they came from, why they're in the situation that they're in, asking for help. The smell presently that might come from them, the clothes that they're wearing, the car or how they came, and then future within a split second in the same breath or mind thought, thought be able to think, well, do I engage this person or not because it will either take one minute or the rest of my afternoon. And I would do that, and I do that in a split second. I've created an entire judgment call of a person that's walked in asking for mercy. And if you're honest with yourself, we do that, all of us, instinctively. It's second nature for us to be able to be partial about the people we run into, your coworkers, 
your neighbors, your children, your parents. We make judgment calls. And what James is saying is this is sin. It is evil. But why, right? Let's go deeper. Why is that the case? Well, he gives us two really important reasons. And the first is because this does not align with God's character and the things he cares about. Read verse 5. Listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? You see that? This, these matters are the things that God cares for. He has inverted the paradigm of what our culture says is important. Who's valuable? Who's supposed to be disregarded? Who's supposed to be thrown to the side and to the curb? And he inverts that. And we see that in Jesus' ministry, right? The one who is full of glory, of majesty, as we sang this morning. He's the one who comes and is actually the one who is poor who is homeless, who has no place to lay his head, who borrows a home to be able to have the Lord's Supper with his disciples, who borrows a donkey. He has no possessions of his own and he comes into this world and he says, I am a father to the fatherless. God says that in the Old Testament. He's a defender of the widow. He draws near to the brokenhearted. This is who God is in his character. And when we are partial and we make distinctions, it goes against who God is, our Father. And that's why this is so evil. But secondly, he roots it in God's law. He talks about the royal law. Follow along with me in verses 8 through 11. James says, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying if you've just broken one law, you have broken it all. And when we are called to love neighbor as ourselves, which is the royal law, we have broken all of it. Because God's law reflects who? God's character in who God is and what the things he cares about. And he's saying if you've broken one. And the, James, the audience for James, guess what they're thinking? They're like, we keep the royal law. Love your neighbor as yourself. We're, we're loving the people. We're loving that man that's coming. We've, we've welcomed them and let them sit in the front row. But he's saying, no, you've disregarded not just one person. You've disregarded all by just favoriting one person over another. Dan Doriani, a Covenant Seminary professor here in St. Louis, he, he gives a good illustration of how to view the law. A lot of times we view the law as individual rocks or stones. We like this stone or law, but we don't like that one. And we can pick and choose and be selective about God's law and the word of God. So we might, we might say, well, love your neighbor. Well, we'll love the neighbor who loves me. We'll love the neighbor who's kind. Well, the neighbor I, I connect with. But what Dan Dorian says, the law of God isn't like individual rocks. Rather, it's this glass sheet, a sheet of glass. 
And imagine if you take a rock and you throw that rock at that glass sheet. What happens? The entire thing shatters. You can't, if, if a kid, if one of you children threw a rock into your window, you can't say, oh, well, the outer part of the glass is fine, so we're okay. No, the whole thing has been destroyed. And when we show partiality, we have broken God's entire law. Because this is who God is. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's the great commandment, first and great commandment. But the second is to love your neighbor as yourself. And that's why he talks about adultery and murder. You can't just say you've done one and it doesn't impact the other. Jesus said the same thing, right? He said if you hate somebody, you have committed murder in your heart. This is why partiality is so evil. That is why there's so much fracturing in our world. That's why there's so much bias in who we like and who we don't. Because here, as James points us to the law, the law demands and anticipates judgment. And that's my third point here. Because the solution to this is this incredible mercy of Jesus. The law of God doesn't just show us who God is. The law anticipates judgment for us. As us, all of us, who show partiality, who make distinctions amongst those who are made in God's image, we have broken all of God's law. And what does that demand? It demands judgment. Verse 12, James says this, So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. You see, when we are partial, when we play favorites, you know what that's a sign of for those who follow Jesus? We do not understand the gravity of God's mercy for us, for you. When you show no mercy and you are partial to one over another, you have not understood the gravity of God's mercy in your life. The one who came into this world suffered and died, not because of any merit of your own, but rather demerit, right? We were enemies against God. We sin against Him. We blaspheme His name. We disregard His law. We choose ourselves to be God and we think we know what's better. Out of demerit, God came into this world, died for our sin because of his his immense love for us and chose us out of all the world to be able to call us his own. When we understand the gravity and the mercy of Jesus, then we can actually show mercy. So though the law demands judgment, because of what Jesus has done, mercy now triumphs over judgment. See that? We don't need to hide from judgment anymore. The judgment seat has been replaced by the mercy seat because of Jesus' merit, because of his work, his sacrifice, his love for you and for me. He has chosen us. And because of that, we can find mercy triumphing over judgment. 
And that is why this is the good news of the gospel. And that's why James roots this in the glory of the Son of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. I shared with you this morning how Hannah and I got to celebrate by watching Les Mis. Is there no other greater story of mercy than Victor Hugo's story in Les Miserables? You could probably call the subtitle Mercy Triumphing Over Judgment. Because here you have the main character, Jean Valjean, and he comes into the scene in France as a broken man. He's a criminal by society and by the law. He's marginalized. He has nothing for himself, no possessions, except a yellow ticket or a passport that says, I am a criminal, I am an outlaw, I am a loser. He tries to get bread, and the baker raises the price because of that yellow passport in saying that you are only, only deserve judgment. He tries to find lodging, but the innkeeper pushes him away because of that yellow passport that says you deserve judgment because you're a criminal. You have no merit to be able to stay here. But what changes for Jean Valjean and his life? A bishop. A bishop that welcomes him in, gives him a place to stay, gives him food to eat. But Jean Valjean cannot understand the mercy of this bishop. He still thinks he deserves judgment. What does he do? In the middle of the night, he takes all that silverware that can provide him a lot of money and a different life. And he runs away, but the police catch him. And when the bishop comes to make account for Jean Valjean stealing his stuff, what does the bishop do? He tells the police, no, I gave it to him. And furthermore, Jean Valjean, you left behind the most important things, these silver candelabras. Jean Valjean, because of the mercy of this bishop, his life is transformed and he shows mercy to all those around him. Mercy triumphing over judgment. But there's an antagonist, Javert, right? This policeman who's out to get Jean Valjean, he deserves judgment. And so Javert, his whole purpose of his life is to bring him down. And in a moment where he can, where Jean Valjean can kill Javert, he shows mercy to his enemy. But you see, for Javert, he can't allow mercy to triumph. So what does he do? He pronounces judgment on himself and he kills himself. Whereas Jean Valjean is able to understand the gravity of the mercy that the bishop shows and lives a life that is transformed, that impacts others to bring wholeness to a fractured world. And at the end of his life, as the story ends, you see Jean Valjean by himself at a table, all alone, as he's waiting to die, what is the only thing in that room besides Jean Valjean? It's the two candelabras that that bishop gave him that are a picture and a symbol and a tangible reminder of the mercy that he received that triumphed over judgment. Church, this morning we have a visible, tangible picture of that mercy. It's not candelabras, but it's this table of Jesus' mercy for you and for me that triumphs over judgment. Receive it.
receive his mercy so that we might be people who bring wholeness in a fractured world where though we are not perfect, because of the mercy that we have received, we will be able to also triumph over judgment and show mercy to those that are different from us, that look different from us, that live in different homes, that are socioeconomically different. But because of the gospel of Jesus, as we receive his body and his blood, we will be forever changed and can change the lives of others because of what Jesus has done for us. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the mercy that you have shown us out of no merit, but rather demerit. Lord, we can now show mercy to others. So Lord, I pray though we are imperfect and it's so hard and it is so instinctive of us to, to show partiality. Lord, feed us at the table now so that we might receive the mercy of God and be able to show the mercy to others. Do that good work, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.